1: Father, you are strong and wise. Maker of heaven and earth, as has already been prayed. And we give you thanks for that. And we give you thanks for how that gives us great assurance that all is well with our souls in your hands. We give you thanks for that, Lord. As we come now to your word, and we open it here, we ask you, would you teach us more? about who you are and how you work? Would you show us yourself? Would you meet us, spiritually meet us in our hearts to nourish us and grow us in Christ's likeness to build joy, to build confidence in us? Father, commission the Spirit to be at work here now in our midst to do that. We need you. Come, please, we pray. If it is to be well with our souls, we need you close to us. Come, we ask. Give life to your word. Give grace to us that we can hear and that we can speak accurately. Give grace to us that we can hope in you and trust you and depend on you. I pray this, Lord, that Christ may be magnified and that your church here may be grown and that those who don't know you may come to. I'm going to pray this in his name. Amen. If you can maybe do something about that that would be really helpful. As many of you know, around my house at home I'm immersed in numerous home renovation projects and a lot of you know because they're your projects also <laughs> you help me with them doing a lot of things and from time to time I find that I have to make do lacking the, the expertise or the time or the proper tool I kind of make something work I make do you do this, this is how this sort of thing happens that's how it goes Well, this last week, I was involved uh, tinkering around with my sprinkler system because of some yard work that had happened, and I had about a 10-foot piece of pipe that I had to work on, and not wanting to dig up the whole flower bed that was on top of this pipe, I decided to make do, and I dug a hole in one end of the pipe and took a saw and cut the pipe off and dug a hole in the other end of the pipe and broke the saw, which led me to work on some other things, and eventually I take a pry bar and I bend this pipe and I wedge a rock in there so I can cap off the other pipe and it works. (laughs) It's good. But if anybody digs it up someday, they're going to wonder, what happened here? That may do. And that's okay in some endeavors in life. You can make stuff work if you don't have the right tool or if you don't use it properly. That works sometimes, but not in everything. Sometimes you must have the proper tool and use it properly if you want to attain the proper desired goal at the end. And that's the situation that we have when it comes to building not just a home, but when it comes to building the church. There is a tool given to us by God that when used properly builds the church, namely the gospel. And if we don't use it, or if we cut corners with it or, or change it a little bit, we don't end up with what we're supposed to have. We don't end up with a vibrant, living, growing, God-centered group, a church. might get something else, but we won't get a church. The gospel preached, the gospel embraced, believed, with your life rooted in it, that's what builds a church. That's God's tool for building his new community, the gospel. That's what we're going to look at today. At the end of Acts chapter 13. Last week, in the middle of Acts chapter 13, we followed Paul and Barnabas as they sailed from the island of Cyprus to the Mediterranean, north to what is now today mainland Turkey, went inland about 100 miles, ended up in the town called Pisidia Antioch, which is different than the Antioch that's their hometown where they started. They're in the middle of Turkey, and they find their way into the synagogue, and there, on a Sabbath, Paul preaches the word. That is, he preaches the gospel. We all stand in need of justification. That was the main issue from last week. It's what he preached. Justification. We are guilty in our hearts, not just with our behavior, with our speech. We are guilty in our hearts before a holy God. And we need to, somehow or another, be found not guilty before him. If we are to enter into relationship and be forgiven, somehow we have to become not guilty, and that cannot happen by our obedience, by our effort. It can only happen by placing personal trust in Christ crucified. Justification, the declaration of you being not guilty before God, that only comes by faith in Christ alone. That's what Paul preached in the synagogue. We saw that last week. And as he preached that, that got a lot of people's attention. They'd never heard that before. So they wanted to look into it further. He began to talk with them. Connects us to this week's passage. Last week we focused only on the the content of his message. And this week we're going to put that back into the context of the whole passage and look at the response to it. So we're going this week. Let me read the passage. This is Acts chapter 13. I'm going to begin in verse 42 and read to the end of the chapter. Acts 13, 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The previous Sabbath, when Paul finished speaking, as I said, the, the congregation was extremely interested in what he said, so they fixed it so that he would have the pulpit again next Sunday and be able to, to speak then. And verses 44 to 48 describe the events of that Sabbath. A massive crowd gathers, it says, nearly the whole city. A huge crowd comes to the synagogue. So there are basically two groups. There's the usual synagogue, synagogue crowd, the ethnic Jews and Gentiles who were called either devout or god fears They would have been worshiping as Jews. They're there. And then there's a whole other mass of the city which would have been pure-blood Gentile. They heard about a little bit about what Paul is saying and they wanted to come hear the word of the Lord too. And they all gathered together. But he begins to speak and the Jewish crowd seeing this whole mass of people who never come around to their services, and now here's this outsider Paul drawing a huge crowd. They get jealous, and they oppose Paul's message. He speaks, they contradict. Speaking, contradicting, back and forth, reviling him. Verse 45 there. Literally it says, blaspheming hinting that they were probably doing a little more than just insulting Paul. They were probably insulting Paul's message, blaspheming Jesus as well. This is not a a friendly debate-seeking information. The Jewish leadership has adopted a hardened position against him, and so Paul and Barnabas also adopt a hardened position back they say that you have rejected the word and the eternal life. Notice that they put the blame squarely on them. You have chosen yourselves unworthy. You've decided we don't want that. Therefore, we're leaving and we're going to take this to the Gentiles, as the scriptures say. And they quote from Isaiah 49. Now when we read that, since the contrast there of since you don't want it, we're going to take it to the Gentiles, we shouldn't read it as an either-or situation such that if the Jews had accepted the gospel then the Gentiles never would have heard about it. They're they're quoting from the Old Testament to show that the Gentiles were always supposed to hear about it. It's not either or, think of it rather as like a highway going somewhere with an off-ramp to a rest area. The rest area is the Jewish community. And Paul and the gospel, they're going somewhere, they are going where Isaiah 49 says, to the ends of the earth, the Gentile nations, but they pull off, every town they go to, they do this, they pull off onto the rest ramp and say to the Jewish congregation there, you want to come? The scriptures say that we have to carry justification to the ends of the earth. You want to come with us? The quote there is singular. You made a light. I'm looking at verse 47. You made a light, the Gentiles. It's singular. Talking about the Messiah. But Paul understands all servants of the Messiah have his main mission as well. He and we are supposed to carry word of justification by faith of the nations. Here's justification. You want to come? You want to come and join the Messiah and join into his mission? You can be justified and we'll go together. And they say, no, we don't. We disagree with that. We disagree with him. We disagree with you. We want nothing to do with it. He says, suit yourselves. I'm getting back onto the highway without you then. Leaving you behind. The gospel was offered. It's presented right there. Here it is. You don't want anything to do with it? We'll move on to the Gentiles. It's for them. The scriptures say so. Messiah is a light to the nations. Not just to the Jews. And when the Gentiles hear that, Verse 48, they are filled with joy. They break out rejoicing and giving glory to the word, to the gospel. They break out in worship and in thanks and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There's a lot of theology right there in that verse. We'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. For now, though, we just see that the conversion of many appointed Jews kind of closes out that phrase phase of the, of the passage, and then it steps back to see not just the events in that synagogue, but to see the events in the whole region. And the divide between the, the Jews in opposition and the Gentiles embracing, the divide widens. It says the gospel, the word of the Lord, spreads everywhere, not just off of Paul and Barnabas' lips, but off of all of those folks who heard it in the synagogue. They go home, and it spreads everywhere. But the Jews, they rise up in their opposition, and they incite, it says, some of the leading women who would have been worshiping as Jews, who then talk to their politically connected husbands, who gather together to throw Paul and Barnabas out of town, out of the region, it says, out of the district. So it's not a friendly, will you please leave sort of thing. Later in his epistles, Paul talks about the suffering that he endured in this city. This is probably a violent expulsion. And as they leave, it says, Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off their feet. They take their sandals off and probably clap them like you're trying to get the dirt off your shoes. It's highly symbolic. It's a sign of disdain. Saying, this place is so in threat, under threat of the curse of God that even the dust itself from this place is contaminated. Keep your dust I don't want to be contaminated. It's reported that some devout Jews, as they traveled out of Israel into Gentile lands, as they returned to Israel, would stop at the border and shake the Gentile dust off their shoes in the Gentile land so as not to contaminate Israel. Paul and Barnabas are saying, you, this region, is under danger, imminent cursing and we want nothing to do with it. It's a strong symbol. But it's not the whole region that's under danger, because there's a church here now. It preached the word, it was heard, rejoiced in, embraced, and now there are disciples here in this region who even amidst the persecution, if they're persecuting Paul and Barnabas, they are surely persecuting everybody else who's spreading the gospel over the place. Even amidst this persecution, it says they're filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's the passage, the text for today. Let's think about how to summarize it. Pull it to, I pull it together into this sentence. Let me give you this sentence, which is the main point for this morning. The gospel is God's tool for building his church So we should proclaim it and embrace it. The gospel is God's tool. It's his means, his his way that he builds the church. It's central here in this passage. The word of the Lord is all over this passage. It's his means, his tool. And so we should, as people who are encountering the gospel, we should receive it, embrace it, and proclaim it. The gospel. Those two aspects... For us, two responses, as receivers and as givers. Embrace, proclaim. Those are the two points that I'm going to look at now in a little more detail. We'll start with the, with the aspect of our receiving it. I'm going to put these, these points in as exhortations because they are things that should come at you and should expect something of you. So I'm going to put it as commands. First response, this passage calls us to is a response of those who are hearing it, and it says to you, Rejoice. Rejoice. The gospel is for you. That's how it should strike you when you hear it. Rejoice. The gospel, good news, is for you. It's not for them With you left pressing your nose against the glass, looking in and thinking, that'd be nice if I could have it, but I can't. It's to you, it's for you, all of you. So the passage is pressing on us. The gospel message, the word of the Lord, is central here. It's mentioned four times explicitly. It's what everybody gathered to hear, it's what Paul was proclaiming, but the Jews opposed. It's what the Gentiles gave glory to, and then it's what they spread everywhere. The word of the Lord is central here. The content of what we looked at last week, what Paul preached, we are each, this is the gospel, we are each fallen in sin, which means that in our hearts we are bent against God in rebellion against Him. And it is surely a heart issue. It is not in our behavior. Our behavior comes out of the heart. The problem is in here. And that means you cannot do enough, do good enough, do enough good, to fix what's going on in here. In our hearts, we are bent against Him. We have other gods before Him, others that we have a higher affection for. This is bad news. What are we to do about that? As Paul explains justification, the declaration you are not guilty to guilty people, the declaration of you are righteous to unrighteous people, that can come only through faith in Christ alone. It's so what he was. Emphasizing in his word of exhortation last week, verses 38 and 39 above, you can be freed from guilt. How? Not by your works, not by obeying the law of Moses, not by obeying any law, but only by trusting in Christ and his cross. That is the gospel. Rejoice. That message is to you. You. It is held out there for you, it is available to you. It is Preached to you, offered to you, whatever word you want to pick, it is to you. This text establishes that point in verse 46 and following. God's scope of activity, the reach of the gospel, is global, it is not confined to one people. He's not working in one little geographic area on the map amongst one ethnicity. Everywhere. The scope is all over the globe. The gospel is for all sorts of people without any distinction on race or ethnicity, cultural or religious background. We've talked about that before. Paul proclaims that here again in this passage. He's preaching to the Jews, as I said, asking them to come with him to the Gentiles. But here's the point for the Gentiles. The Gentiles. When last week he says, not through the law of Moses, what the Gentiles hear in that is not through temple, not through sacrifice, not through circumcision. I don't have to become somebody else first. I don't have to clean up my act and become a Jew. You don't need to clean up your act and become something else before the gospel is to you. It is to you right where you are. They hear that and they break out in rejoicing. The gospel is for them. Praise God. They believe it. The church is planted by this gospel that's to them. Established in joy, they grow. The gospel is to everybody, Jew and Gentile. It's to you too. It doesn't matter where you come from or who you are. It doesn't matter what kind of sin is in your background or what kind of nastiness is back there. You don't have to clean up your act first. In fact, if you try to, you can't. You can't come to Christ like that. It's not a combo deal of Christ plus your works, it's one or the other. Either you attempt to clean up your act or you say, I cannot. I have to trust only in you, Jesus, because I look at myself and I realize I am guilty before God and I can't fix that. Help one or the other. There is a great big divide between the two. Faith in Christ and his cross or your own effort. The gospel to you says lay down your effort. Come to him by faith alone. That's the offer to you. Some here this morning need to hear that and embrace it. Do so. Trust Him alone. Lay aside your effort. Trust Christ. He will justify you, free you from guilt. And if you already have, you still take the gospel You still embrace it. You still rejoice because the gospel's for you. If we were honest, many of us, and I'm talking to the Christians here now, many of us would have to rewrite verse 48 like this. we have to write it something like, and when they heard this, they said, thank you, and went back to what they were doing before they got interrupted. When they heard this, they said, thank you, I know that. When's he going to be done? Far too many of us with far too great a frequency, if we're honest, would have to rewrite verse 48 about ourselves like that. We wouldn't say he broke out in rejoicing and gave glory to the gospel. We need to stop and think about that a little more. And I don't say this to chastise you. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to chastise you and say, shame on you. You should be more thankful. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, I'm saying how sad it is that you so rarely draw on the resources available here for living in joy. How sad it is that you so rarely tap into the wonder of the gospel to find in it power to help you live in joy despite whatever happens. In the gospel, there is an astounding reservoir of life, of soul, of of internal life-giving water that will quench your insides even when no rain falls on the outside. When the circumstances of life do not come, do not go your way, you can still tap into the reservoir and find life there and find hope there. Joy, joy that feels good, we all want that, but more than that, joy that is supposed to be your strength in the fight against sin. The verse says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Strength for what? Strength to fight against sin. Strength to walk in righteousness. That joy is found in the gospel. How sad it is that you don't go there to find it. It provides strength for you in your heart to help you in fighting against the temptations of the world that say, come over here and find joy and find pleasure and find hope over here. If you have the joy of the Lord, you say, no thanks, you can't offer me anything. Joy is found in the gospel. How is that? Like this. You can give me an example to try to show it. What are the things that frustrate you, that anger you, that hurt you? Think of something. Maybe something trivial like getting cut off in traffic or arriving late to work or something like that. Or moving up the scale in importance. Maybe it's some relational disagreement that you have, a fight you have with a spouse or co-worker at work and she steals credit for your project and so you're diminished in the eyes of your peers and your boss. Moving up the scale a little more, maybe it's a health problem that you face or that a loved one faces. Maybe you're sick, maybe you're dying. Maybe you're facing financial pressures. You don't know you're going to lose everything you think. You don't know how this is going to happen, how it's going to work out. Things that threaten you, that cause you fear and anxiety. Or, or perhaps find a temptation, something that lures you. Elicit sexual pleasure. Financial gain, greed. Whatever, there's a thousand things here. Find something that scares you, frightens you, causes you, anxiety tempts you. Mentally at least, write that down. Set it over here for a second. And Listen. I'm going to read a couple of scripture passages. This relates, so listen. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2. Or from Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and repays those who hate him. Or from Second Thessalonians 1, the Son is coming from heaven, Christ, with mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. From Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and He is coming soon and swiftly in fire. That is the problem in life. Period. Those passages and many others are the problem in life. The great reality in life. We don't like to hear, even hear those passages. It's a little uncomfortable to hear me read them. It is the problem. He is coming. And that the problem is infinitely more, and I don't use that word lightly, it is infinitely greater than Any other problem in life, including death. Anything else, anything you wrote on your piece of paper, the reach of that problem ends at the grave. This problem still goes on. The reach of all those problems, they can only touch the body. This problem touches the soul. At the end of all of those problems, you are still left face-to-face with a God who will look right through you. Know your guilt and condemn you under his wrath. That is a huge problem. But, 1 Thessalonians 1, The Son is coming from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you're a Christian, who delivers you from the wrath to come. You're delivered. The problem in life is not your problem. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And if your soul is not saying hallelujah, you haven't got it. The problem in life is you before a holy God. And if you're a Christian, 1 Thessalonians 1 says you are delivered from it, justified, not guilty when he comes. In the face of which you should break out in worship. Thank you, Lord. At the gospel, in the gospel, he has done something astonishing. Freed you from wrath. And the freeing you from wrath releases you and places you somewhere else. Where? In his presence in which there is fullness of joy. At his right hand at which there are pleasures forevermore. Into a place where you are the recipient of all of the promises of God. All the promises to provide every one of your needs. To only do you good. Always. To draw you close to him. To hold you in his arms when you suffer. To carry you through suffering into his presence at the end. To give you the physical inheritance of the new heaven and the new earth. All those promises far more than that. Chief among which is himself. The gospel's given you all those things. And compared to that, everything else we have here is small. So don't sweat the small stuff. And everything's small. And don't buy the small stuff that sin offers you. And it can only offer you small stuff. The gospel, when it's in your mind, puts you in a place of saying, Are you kidding me, internet porn site? Are you kidding me? You want me to sacrifice all of this to look at a picture on my computer? Are you kidding me? But you can't think like that if the gospel is not dominating your mind because the picture on the computer looks pretty good if there's no gospel in your mind. If you're not experiencing the presence of the Lord, the Internet looks great. But it's not. It's small and cheap. And so's the magazine And so is the actual woman who's not your wife. It's all small and cheap if your mind is there. And it comes there by washing yourself in the gospel constantly. Of bringing the big problems of life, sin and wrath, to the fore. And the big solution, the cross, to the fore. That happens moment by moment and day by day. We need to do it moment by moment and day by day. You can't do it once a week. You can't have me do it once a week for you. You can't do it once a month. You have to do it day by day. That comes in the Scriptures. He uses the Scriptures to build his church. The Gospel. That's what the Scriptures are about the Gospel. That's what he uses to build his church. Christians, he uses it to acquire Christians, to save people. And then, once they're saved, to build them up. He uses the word, rejoice. The gospel is for you. Either the first time, believe it, or now today. It's again for you. Believe it. Think about it. Dwell on it in your mind. That's the first perspective, us as receivers of this gospel. The second one is us as givers of it. We are to carry forth the word of the salvation to our neighbors, co-workers, those all around us, that's evangelism, and to those who are a little harder to reach, we have to be more deliberate about it, set aside people to go, that's missions. We've been talking a lot about that in our church over the last year plus. We preached through this book in Acts, the book of John before, we've been talking a lot about that. That's our calling. And I'm, I'm happy, I'm... I'm grateful to see by grace to see some changes going on in our congregation. That's a good thing. I think we are beginning, in some ways, beginning to get an idea that we need to be caring about people out there, carrying the gospel to them. But I find this fear in my heart. See if you identify with this. In the back of my mind, there's this nagging question what if nothing happens? What if it doesn't work? I preach and preach and preach and preach and preach and preach and preach. Then I preach some more. And we talk some more. And we organize some more. and We go do some more, but nothing happens. Nobody comes to faith. Nobody believes. Nobody's converted. Nobody's regenerated. I'm not talking about professing faith or simply professing faith. From time to time that happens in our church. People profess faith, but to my knowledge, I've seen very little fruit from a number of supposed professions of faith. So I'm not talking about that. We don't want to multiply just people saying they're becoming Christians. We want to multiply Christians, people who actually are saved. We all should want that. We all should desire that eagerly. Pray towards it. Work towards it. Ask God to to break out from heaven and to move. What if it doesn't happen? Do you wonder that? Do you think about that? I do. And to that concern or fear, this passage says, and here's the second main point here, to that concern, this passage says, take heart. The gospel will bear fruit. Take heart, be encouraged, have confidence. The gospel will fruit it does not return void it accomplishes all of God's purposes it will bear fruit because of us no ultimately because of God it's made very clear in verse 48 a verse that should be tremendous encouragement to us but I note that ironically as we focus on this verse I'm aware that instead of it being very encouraging for a number of us it's, it's gonna cause some consternation it cause some some problem some of us have a an expectation or an understanding of what god is like and how he works and there's a there's a problem when the bible says something otherwise and it's going to today for some of us i don't know who but it will so my encouragement to you is let the bible shape your theology there there be plenty of time to talk about the philosophy behind it you know if this then that and how can this be and what do we make of that plenty of time to talk about the philosophy and I'd love to but we need to start with the doctrine in the Bible and then work out how that can be and the doctrine is pretty clear and I don't mean to be I hope I don't come off as in some way, hard-nosed about this or arrogant or something like that. I just have found that, unless I am very clear, passages like this are misunderstood all the time. So I'm going to try to be very clear. Looking back at verse 38 from last week, in 38, we ask the question, how is a person justified, declared not guilty before God, saved? And it says there, by him, by Christ, everyone who believes believes is freed, justified. Everyone. If you believe, no matter who you are, it does not matter, if you believe, you will be saved for sure by authority of the Apostle Paul, the authority of the Scripture. Everyone who believes is saved. But some of us read a statement like that and we make a mistake by making that verse say more than it actually does. Verse 38 does not say one word about how a person comes to believe. It doesn't. That's verse 48. 38 just says, If you believe, you will for sure be saved. 48 explains where belief comes from. When the Gentiles heard that the gospel was open to them too, they began to rejoice and glorify the word, and here's the key phrase as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Everyone who had been, at some point prior, appointed to eternal life. That's pretty clear, I think. You've got 38. If you believe, you will be saved. And you have 48 saying, who believed? Those who had been appointed to eternal life. There's a chain here. Eternal life, belief, appointed. Appointedness precedes. Those who were appointed or selected, or the Bible's word, elected. That's not my word, that's the Bible's word. This is about election. Right here in verse 48. We find the same thing in John chapter 10 on the lips of Jesus. John 10 is the passage where Jesus is disagreeing with the Pharisees about this good shepherd. The Old Testament had set up this idea that a good shepherd was coming to shepherd the sheep of God, and Jesus is saying, that's me, and they don't believe it for a minute. They're going back and forth here, and Jesus says things in that chapter. He says things like, I know my own, and my own know me. I'm going to call my sheep. They will hear my voice and follow me. He's talking like that throughout this chapter. And then in in verse 26, this is John 10, 26, Speaking to the hostile crowd, he says, But you do not believe because you are not my flock. There's an order there again. You do not believe because you are not my flock. You're not my sheep. Sheepness, flockness, precedes belief. John 10. What we're seeing here in our chapter in Acts is John 10 acted out. The voice of Jesus calls out the word of the Lord, goes forth in the gospel. Some hear it and do not believe because they are not his sheep. Some, his sheep, those appointed, hear the voice, come, believe, and everyone who believes is saved. Who comes? The sheep, the appointed ones. Or to put it in the words of John 6, where Jesus said, Those whom my Father has given me will come to me, and I will save them all. There's an order there. It's the reality of the doctrine of election. And I know that causes theological problems for some of us. I'd love to talk more about that. But notice... This passage does not explain how election works. Doesn't say. You are not happy. And the more you start talking, the more upset Gospel. The gospel will...